Today's episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by Florio. Florio's virtual reality platform delivers behavioral therapy and helps teach social and communication skills for individuals with autism spectrum disorder. Their research-backed evidence-based learning program is used in classrooms across the country as well as other prestigious organizations like the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. The flexible VR technology can be used in and outside the classroom. Florio's research is supported by the National Institutes of Mental Health's Small Business Technology Transfer Program. Visit edcuration.com to find Florio and learn more about their immersive lessons. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. It's a little bit of social work, a little bit of science, and a little bit of passion. The most valuable resource is also their time. It just can't be wasted on fluff. But we have to be able to continuously poll our students and just give them voice. We have to pick texts that are totally going to push their thinking. It seems like educators always have interesting and often circuitous journeys. And so where has yours taken you? When I was a kid, I wanted to be a teacher because all the teachers I had or most teachers that I had truly genuinely cared and supported me and encouraged me to be my best self. And in doing so, I really had that was the beginning of my drive to want to provide that for my future students. This is Christy, your host, and that was today's guest, Laura Lee Smith. Laura Lee has spent 15 years as an educator exploring the growing field of neuroscience and its impact on classroom practices, leading her students in reflection and connection. During the last 10 years, she led the North Mason School District in creating systems for proactive behavior support, and she currently serves as the MTSS PBIS behavior coach for the Pioneer School District. Her role includes leading trauma-informed practices and designing multi-tiered systems of support. As a brain-aligned social-emotional learning consultant, she teaches educators to use the applied educational neuroscience framework to create authentic regulation and readiness for learning by designing sensory-friendly learning environments and experiences. That is a whole lot of big words and titles, which we're going to unpack together. But first, back to Laura Lee's childhood dream of being a teacher. I remember as being a kid, um, setting up each of my rooms and my house as being different subjects. And when you came to my house to play, we played school. And it coincidentally, of course, it kind of makes this whole full loop. I remember at the beginning of this pandemic, I was like, this feels like I'm going back to my childhood again as I'm setting up this learning experience for my seven-year-old daughter in home. That is hilarious that you put content areas in the different rooms of your house. (laughs) It's always lovely to hear that someone went into the teaching profession because they had such good teachers. I've had the gift of 15 years in a classroom and every single one of those students have made an impact on me and I'm grateful for that and I hope that I've made the same impact for them. Laura Lee eventually became an instructional coach in order to help other teachers create that same kind of learning environment. She now draws on that coaching experience as a consultant, helping teachers and districts move toward more inclusionary practices. This drive and passion 
was born out of two key life experiences. I was in a traumatic car accident when I was 20 years old, and I suffered a traumatic brain injury. And I had to experience what it was like to relearn how to learn. And I did not know that there was more than one way to learn. I thought always that my effort was what was equating my success in school until I learned that what I was doing before my traumatic brain injury was no longer working. I was in my freshman year of college when that happened, and that just gave me more drive to be a better educator. I wanted to be able to lean into, at that time, what I thought was neurodiversity. Laura Lee focused her master's thesis on learning for all learners, multiple intelligences, learning styles, and integrative experiences. Her biggest motivation to move this field forward came in 2013. I I had my beautiful daughter and she was diagnosed with sensory processing disorder. So the door opened again of how much I didn't know. So I've also very much learned as an educator as I started to apply some of her accommodations that she needed in my own classroom and saw the radical change of more regulated learners, more self-aware and supportive, you know, students. I was just like, okay. So I'm curious um, if you can make a make more explicit for for me and for our listeners what those kind of accommodations look like and what neurodiverse learning how, what what differentiates it? I mean, right now there's a lot of focus on trauma-informed instruction and social-emotional learning. How does this interact or overlay those practices? I think it's really important for us as humans, not just educators, to really understand that term neurodiversity. And so I want to start with ask or just defining neurotypical. That might be a starting point for that. And mm-hmm. Neurotypical is typically an individual who's not affected by a developmental disorder and exhibits typical neurological development. And as educators, we can often name this as that midline in our data points um, where we feel that, okay, this is where most of my students seem to fall. And now to define neurodiversity, which is a much more it's a rich definition. There's so many things that are still unfolding for this because it still is a a new neuroscience terminology. And so the basic definition of neurodiversity is the variation in brain functioning within the human population. So there's a beautiful statement that I have written here that's really valuable to me is uh, different people think differently. And it's not just because of their differences in culture or life experiences, but it's because their brains are wired to work differently. And so it is is a word that embraces all of the neurological uniqueness, all rhythms of neurodevelopment and all the forms by which humans can express themselves and contribute to the world. Would it be that there's a spectrum like the autism spectrum, that there's also a neurodiversity or neurodivergent spectrum that students are on? And can we assume that we probably have a lot more neurodiverse or neurodivergent learners in our classrooms than we recognize or than have been labeled or identified? Oh, that's a beautiful, I would say, I think that's a great conclusion in the sense that 
Um, I hear when you say this also, it's kind of like the onion in a sense. I want to think layers to this too, because you asked the question about trauma-informed and um, all of the different kind of systems and the things that we're getting to know about our students themselves. And so I truly feel like it's layers. And again, it's um, that's what makes it complex. But the more that we can understand what those layers are in itself, the more I feel it will be like a blanket of support rather than a stressor of identifiers. You talked about this idea that we all learn differently and we all need different modalities. So is that what neurodiverse instruction looks like is just providing multiple modalities for students? I love that question because it leads me directly to thinking about how universal design for learning is a framework that will help identify those different modalities and those different needs. Universal design for learning, it's a neuroscience approach that really helps us with just the structure and the framework in itself it creates accessibility and being able to create those different modalities. And what that looks like to me is, is any learning experience. Um, some of us prefer to sit in a nice comfy chair. Some of us prefer to stand to process. It's based, you know, think about how you process your learning, what helps you be most engaged mm-hmm. and engagement may look like, again, like I'm just saying, going back to the standing and writing or the sitting crisscross and, you know, having a clipboard or whatever that looks like, it is um, adaptable to what brings them most engagement. And so I think of my daughter here for a moment and her neurodiversity, if she has to sit in a chair and sit and get, she, um, doesn't hear the words the teacher is saying because she's so her nervous system is paying attention to the fact that she has to stay still. And when she stands up, this is one of her accommodations. When she stands up and is able to even walk in circles, when she's explaining something in front of a class, she can tell you the most rich and dense story and summary to all of her learning. It's such a beautiful thing. And in my mind, I'm thinking, of course, we go to the traditional classroom and think, what are the other kids going to think about that? What are the other, how are the other kids going to process what's happening for her? But this is where I think there's that beauty in having that shared understanding of what diversity looks like in a new way is to say the kids are going to go, she's processing her learning. Mm. She's using her thinking. It's not that, what is she doing? Oh my gosh, why is she walking in circles? So just to change that dynamic in itself and recognizing that we all have different needs as we are processing our information, Mm -hmm. representing our learning. And um, again, I want to go back to the fact that I think UDL is the, the beautiful framework that can create that for our educators. So how did that look in your classroom? What were some of the things that you did to accommodate all of those Um, different kinds of learners in your classroom. Oh my gosh. And that's the evolution of education and evolution of instruction because truly and absolutely each group of students got, had a different makeup of what that looked like. But so I'm going to go back to my, my last and most recent non um, virtual classroom. Um, And it looked in the sense that um, the first proactive universal strategy that I had was to have the conversation. I made sure that we as a class understood 
nervous system dynamics. I made sure that we had lessons on brain science and so that we were able to identify the behaviors and accommodations that were needed for each as being that and not as an entitlement or a distraction. And so we definitely absolutely had a menu of options. We used the zones of regulation. The zones of regulation was a really good color dynamic for us to be able to refer to. It's again, using that self-awareness of like, I'm noticing that I'm fidgeting with my pen and I'm not doing my work. Maybe I need to stand up and just, you know, give me, they gave me like a, I think it was a three nonverbal signal of I'm needing a brain break or a breath break. And so when they did that, if they walked around the classroom and didn't disrupt any of the other learning experiences and they came back to their learning, they had a successful accommodation for themselves. And it took exploration. It took experimentation, but setting that precedence and that if this is not interrupting other learners, if this is helping you focus, then you are choosing to use the right tool for you to be able to be successful. That was our beautiful community. For those listeners unfamiliar with the zones of regulation, it's a framework and curriculum developed by occupational therapist Leah Kuypers. It helps students develop awareness of internal states and to identify emotions. They learn to use a variety of strategies and tools for regulation, self-care, pro-social skills, and overall wellness. It's pretty much what all of us in our 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s are working on in therapy. Each of the zones is color-coded. The green zone is really where you want to be, and that green zone represents you're regulated, you're ready to learn, you're comfortable, you're um, rested, you're well, like all, and everyone's green box kind of can be described in a different way. You know, when you're in your flow, it's for you to figure out which zone you're in based on the descriptors. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that clarification because absolutely. Yes. I can't say, I can't look at you right now and go, you're in the green zone. Yeah. (laughs) Because you could, I mean, of course, behaviors can demonstrate that. You can read my aura and tell me which zone I'm in. Okay. Uh, And (laughs) With the green zone, there's the variances, of course, the blue zone is when you're kind of more tired and you're just needing a little bit more of a, you know, kind of an umph to get you into the green zone. And the yellow zone is like, you're starting to kind of escalate. You're kind of feeling like you're agitated or you're irritated where the red zone is the zone that you want to visit the least. We don't want to act like there is no red zone, but we want to make sure that, you know, you visit it the least and you are actively trying to get back to the green zone. And the red zone, as you can probably guess, is the zone where you're angry, you're, you're frustrated, you're feeling out of control of your behavior a little bit more, and you need to try to gain that center of control. So that's the zones of regulation. Yeah. So that's helpful. And it gives students words around what they're experiencing and it normalizes it for them. Like we're, we're all in the red zone sometimes and it's okay. You talk about helping students and supporting learners to get to their cortex. What do you mean by that? So, you know, when you get in the flow, this is kind of a great connection to the green zone that we're talking about here. So I guess think about in that green zone again. Mm-hmm. So when you know, when you get in your flow and you It could be when you're reading a book, you're just focusing on that one thing and you're just caught in that mix and you're just getting so much joy from it. What created that for you? Were you rested? Were you comfortable? Were you you feeling regulated, connected to what you're doing? 
you zone out all the sensory triggers around you. Like you don't hear your dog barking behind you or you don't hear anything. And that is because you have your highway to your cortex. You have accessed your learning and your reasoning brain because you're not emotionally triggered. Your basic needs are met. And so we want to, I want to support learners get to their cortex, feel those feels of engagement authentically, um, regularly, and when they need it most. And the way that I explain this kind of, it matches with Bruce Perry. He is a researcher behind what he calls the neurosequential model. And it explores how our brain um, communicates from the bottom up. And so our reasoning part of our brain is actually the last place of our brain to get the information, your brainstem, which is the bottom of our brain that's linked to our nervous system. It actually gets its input of information from our sensory systems. And because of that, um, it's critical to understand how our senses are providing input to our nervous system and brain. Um, so we can have, I want to say control over it or awareness over it so that we can, again, create the highways and not have these barriers because these sensory um, stimulus or sensory triggers are getting in the way of that. And so essentially um, getting to the cortex is about teaching the brain and teaching about the brain and interweaving that knowledge in our reflections and our interactions and our engagement. So it's really about each learner figuring out what they need and their own ways of learning best and their own ways of being comfortable and being able to maximize their own learning. Absolutely. And I think that all of us want to build that resiliency and lifelong learnerness and that capacity to take on adversity and challenge by them, like on their own. That's our investment as educators for our students. Helping students find ways to maximize their own learning sometimes requires innovative tools like the virtual reality platform from Florio, created for students with autism spectrum disorder. This is Vijay. I'm a father of a child with ASD and the founder of Florio, a virtual reality platform for teaching social communication and independent living skills. We're proud to sponsor this episode of the Ed Curation Podcast. At Florio, we empower neurodiverse students by giving them an environment that is safe, controllable, repeatable, and dignified in which to practice the skills that will make their lives more fulfilling and enriched. You'll find Florio, this highly effective and easy to implement tool at edcuration.com. One of the neurodiverse um, challenges that we will see probably in our students is the challenge that your daughter has, which is the sensory processing disorder, which seems to me like this is a fairly recent diagnosis. Um, it's not something that I learned about or that we talked about when I was actually going through teacher training. It wasn't one of the things that we accommodated for. It wasn't something that we really had a label for or understood. I don't think maybe you can correct me on how long we've known about sensory processing disorders, but it impacts learning and I'm curious how, how it impacts learning and how to create a more friendly environment for students with that particular challenge. And I have to say that this is, I feel like sensory processing is a very new science, and okay. a very new descriptive. And 
I did not learn about it in any of my schooling. This, the knowledge that I've gained in application in my educational career has come from seeking to understand how to best support my child as well. Okay. Um, and as an avid researcher, it just, the alignment is just so beautiful in support to all learners um, from any age, really. So I'm advocating strongly for it to somehow be amongst the training for teachers as general ed teachers as well. You know, you, you get that book, the things that they didn't teach you in college. Yeah. It's kind of one of those lessons that I feel like the things that they didn't teach you in college. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I'm way older than you, but I'm not sure anybody knew about it when I was in college. Or they just didn't have a name for it. And neuroscience is such a growing, again, a growing science. Yeah. And it's just so blows my mind. <laughs> so um, to better describe what sensory processing is, is a kind of in connection to that whole getting to the cortex idea is again, that understanding that really our brainstem is using our sensory organs, which is our eyes, our ears, our nose, and our taste to really <clears throat> process the level of danger and safety around us. That's like an automatic, an automatic system that's going in process. And so to know that our senses are what's creating that chemical response in our body is to help us be more aware. It helps us be more aware of our environment and experiences. Mm -hmm. Like as humans and adults, when our, when our blood pressure starts to rise or like our heartbeat starts to go a little faster, it's that whole, like, wait a minute, what's creating that for me right now? Is it that mm -hmm. loud noise over here? Is it my dog barking over here? Like recognizing that it's actually what we hear, see, taste, and feel is what's creating that response for us. Mm -hmm. I think is foundational. And if we could teach our kids that stuff, I know, like, I know so, we weren't yeah. taught that way. I mean, we had to realize that as adults, that when we're starting to feel triggered to be able to stop and say, what, what is happening for me right now? Why is it happening? Where is it coming from? Give myself permission to sit for a minute and think and breathe I'm telling you, Loralee, these are things that I have learned maybe in the past decade, right? We weren't taught this and it wasn't modeled for us. So it's our learning as well. I love what you say there because there's a reality. You just were very clear about a true reality of there's a lot of unlearning. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of unlearning for us that are leading the way. Um, and that's really vulnerable for us as educators because we have to unlearn it while we're also teaching it. And we're doing that in many areas in education, but that's also in benefit to us mm -hmm. as we are teaching these skills to them. It's also helping us become and grow that, you know, into a better human being. So get really concrete with me for a minute and describe a sensory friendly learning environment. I mean, physically. So there is a beautiful description that starts with our awareness to be able to figure out what to do to create the sensory friendly learning environment, as well as getting to know our students. And so uh, when you go to a professional development session, what are you looking for to be authentically engaged? What do you do? Do you have your water bottle next to you? Do you have, you know, are you sitting crisscross applesauce? Do you have your slippers on now? Like <laughs> our professional development, sensory friendly environment for our engagement. Cause again, it's for our engagement. Mm -hmm. uh, we do different things that create sensory input that helps us be centered. Mm -hmm. And so in order to do this for our students, 
I think it is very important for us to reckon, like literally tomorrow or today, when you walk into your classroom, just look around and looking around to see, putting yourself in that, the student situation of going, are, am I providing options for them to feel comfortable or sensory centered so that they are able to engage in their learning? And some of the look fors could be the lighting, the modality, again, like you spoke of, are you only asking them to use a pencil at all times? Because sometimes having markers and sometimes having the dry erase markers or the pens help them process and apply their learning. Um, what am I asking them to do when they sit? Am I giving them variable options? And so when you walk into your classroom, think about, am I providing an environment for engagement based off of the sensory input for my children? That's a challenge. I mean, when you think about the average high school, there's nothing comfortable. It's fluorescent lights. The rooms are cold or hot. The chairs are horrible. And most of the time students are asked to just sit for long periods of time. I mean, I think we're, we're giving, we're being a little bit more intentional and we're evolving in how we design schools and learning spaces, but just economically, it's not like you can rebuild every school and make it a friendly learning environment. And there's a lot of old schools out there and they're just not, they're just so uncomfortable. You don't feel good when you walk in. No. And the unfortunate reality is, is it seems that if a teacher really wants to provide, shall we say, flexible seating, it's at the cost of the teacher. It's not at the cost of the school. And that's where, again, I feel like embedding this approach needs to be developed within the system of support. And if UDL or the Universal Design for Learning is going to be as a core framework for a school district as ours is becoming, mm-hmm. is it's really important to also say, well, this cannot be, this doesn't look the same as what the environment is designed for in this space. And so I want some, or we need support for adaptability to that. Because um, again, it needs to be enhanced, designed, and not streamlined. Yeah, and I think that it's streamlined right now. So universal design for learning, say more about that. Universal design for learning is to create accessibility for learners based off of engagement, representation, and action and expression. And so it's how they process their learning, how they show their learning, and how they are engaged with their learning. And the process of that is, is you get to know the standard. And you get to know the standard the students are going for and you provide the variability for them to be able to meet that standard. So let's just say a social studies standard and they can choose to do a written report on it, a presentation. Um, They could do a performance um, just in different ways for them to demonstrate their learning. And of course, in the educator mind, you go, okay, how does how do I create that? I would love to have that kind of idea, but that's where the focus is getting to know your standard mm-hmm. as well as providing clear assessment rubrics to go along with that. And from there, having those two pieces, you can be able to create opportunity for your children to be, or students to be able to perform and meet that standard. So the whole idea of teaching has been in metaphorical comparison 
is you don't want to go to a dinner party that's just serving tuna casserole because tuna casserole (laughs) no (laughs) because tuna casserole will only maybe make a couple people happy people will still come but their enjoyment level or their actual engagement and takeaway they're going to go home and stop you know stop along the way on their way home. Katie Novak explains this. She's a key um, person in this whole process that she says that instead of doing a tuna casserole, you do a buffet of options. And so, you know, you have a pasta bar and you have the um, different kinds of pastas, you know, whole wheat pasta, you know, this, and have that option of being able to select to create your own experience. That's universal design for learning. Thank you for clarifying that. I think that'll be helpful. It's not something I knew much about. So can you talk about what kind of training and resources does a teacher need to be successful with neurodiverse learners who maybe hasn't had the training and been able to do the amount of research that you've done? Where can a teacher start? Well, I think the first place to start is the the knowledge within your building. And I say this because oftentimes you do not get to learn from or intentionally collaborate with the special ed teachers. The occupational therapist knows a lot of great things that can help general educators, as well as the SLP, the uh, speech language pathologist. And so my first thought is, um, again, a systematic approach of intentionally um, planning for or in the schedule, have that time and collaboration with those specialists and not just with an IEP at the center of the meeting, just to create those, again, universal practices and um, choices for students. Mm-hmm. So that's my first thought because they are rich with knowledge. I did a case study with some neurodivergent learners and their parents, and I asked what, their ed- what they would want educators to know as well. So asking within there, like really collaborating with the students mm-hmm. and the parents and families, because it's amazing what that they'll share. So listen to the parents because they are just like myself engaged in wanting to give the best to their kiddos. I can imagine that it would be really affirming to any occupational therapist in any building to have a teacher come and say, Hey, could you just come in my classroom? Give me a couple of tips, recommendations. What can I tweak? What can I fix to just make it a more nurturing learning environment for, for all of my learners, not only my neurodiverse ones, but what's good for special needs kids is good for every kid. In addition to those tips, Laura Lee offered some book recommendations. First on her list is The Out of Sync Child by Carol Kranowitz. It's full of tools, exercises, and intentional supports. Another is What Happened to You by Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. It's a conversation of trauma and resilience through understanding of the nervous system. You'll find links to both of these books in the episode notes. I'm wondering if you can share a success story, either from a student in your classroom or maybe a teacher that you've worked with as a consultant. I have a story about a student that I had in my classroom that forever changed me because I was able to see the progression of my practice and my evolution of implementation. So I'm going to do my best to explain the story without getting choked up. (laughs) Honestly, I have teachers all the time who get really emotional sharing stories about their students. And it's just a reflection of how much we love them. Oh, feel free to cry. (laughs) 
it's our heart work, isn't it? Not, I, we're definitely doing hard work, but there's definitely some heart in our work. Mm-hmm. Oh, so this dear child, she had developmental trauma. And so this is a fourth grade student. And so she had learned to function with just the unfortunate stress response system. So what that looked like was, is that she would have unpredictable, intense behavior meltdowns in my classroom. Like everything would seemingly be fine and dandy. And then all of a sudden it was throwing of chairs, flipping of desks, yelling and screaming. And it just became obviously impacted the whole classroom environment and learning. And how often did this happen? Almost every day. And, um, of course, following the behavior response plan and the disciplinary practices were not changing the behavior Mm -hmm. and it was only making it worse. And the thing that was really complex for me is that I felt that it was impacting my rapport and relationship with her because I was always the one who was having to follow that plan. And during this time while she was in my class was also when I was learning about what my daughter was diagnosed with. And so I'd have the intensity of this behavior in my classroom and then come home and have the behavior intensity in my home of very similar behaviors. And I'm like, my child does not have developmental trauma and she does. And these behaviors are very similar. And so I've had to figure out what that commonality was of what is creating these same similar behaviors in two different circumstances and for two very different reasons. And so I began to experiment with a very well-rounded counselor that worked with me, um, a nervous system navigation protocol instead of our behavior response plan. And so we developed these periodic check-ins where it wasn't intrusive. It wasn't, I guess she didn't have to elaborate. She could just give a nonverbal. Uh, we used the zones of regulation, like I spoke of earlier. At the very beginning of the day, she checked in of what color she was in. I could give her a thumbs up or I could just come check in with her and see how she was doing. So we moved into proactive move. And we did, we created a tiered response system to this. So our tier one, and then we created a calm down corner, started with her design of like, she experimented, you know, if it was a stress ball, she needed to squeeze something, or if it was something that she needed to feel like pet, like have a, a blanket, or if it was a weighted blanket, like she had to experience what was bringing her the most calm. And so in class, she would just look at me and just give me a five. Um, and that would just be her signal to me of giving for five minutes to just kind of reset and return. And of course this took a little bit of training and failing and growing. And how old was this child? Fourth grade. So she was nine. Okay. And from there we um, were just able to, it was such a beautiful end of the year. I cried. I think the whole last week of her being in my classroom because it was that whole transferring on the transferable. You got this, you got this right. You've been showing me, you got this, you, you can do this. Because by the end of like literally a month within, we had turned it into a community thing where the universal supports and the check-in system became a classroom protocol. It became a nervous system navigation classroom practice. And so, because she was not the only one dealing with the hard things, yeah. 
other people had learned to also mask that they were doing the hard, going through something hard. And so it was a beautiful community and it was so impactful to see how when we develop that common language of that behavior is actually communicating something and to learn maybe what that something is created resolution and community. So, you know, it's comforting to hear you talk about this is that, so I asked you this question at the beginning of how does this correspond or overlay trauma-informed practices and good, solid social, emotional learning practices. And they're almost all the same. These are the same things. It's the creating the space. It's having the conversations. It's allowing students to have voice and agency in their own learning. Those are the things that I'm hearing from, from trauma-informed experts and social emotional learning experts and coordinators um, that these are not, it's not one more thing. It's all the same. Exactly. You just said it right there. Yeah. So, and I think that that is comforting to teachers too, because they're being asked to attend to so many different standards and so many different objectives when they come into a classroom beyond just their content right? So they have like a social emotional learning objective, and then they have 10 kids who need accommodations in their classroom. And these kinds of practices are an umbrella. They're just going to nurture everyone. I think it's a beautiful thing of what you just said right there. Our brain and body connection um, is going to be the center point to being able to meet all of the systems that you are growing in as educators. You can find Laura Lee at Laura Lee Smith Consulting linked in the episode notes, along with her social media feeds and all the resources and books mentioned in this episode. Her website is a banquet of resources, including her podcast, her blog, a sensory systems checklist to use with students, and her online courses and consulting opportunities. If you'd like to know more about how to use foundational nervous system knowledge to develop authentic regulation and sensory awareness, Laura Lee is happy to work with your school or district. And while you're thinking about adaptations and accommodations for diverse learners, you're going to want to check out today's sponsor, Florio, virtual reality for students with autism spectrum disorder. Kelly Hargraves, special education teacher at Staley Middle School in Frisco, Texas, said, I have never had students so excited about learning before introducing them to Florio. Now, my students can't wait to come to my class because of this awesome program. It brought tears to my eyes just seeing how much excitement they had to continue their learning even during their summer break. I absolutely love Florio because it allows the kids to experience hands-on different learning environments, which really helps them to generalize the information. Find Florio at edcuration.com, and while you're there, check out our upcoming webinars, our Certified Ed Trustee program that allows you to try before you buy, our micro-professional learning explorations, our blog, and all of our other podcast episodes. If you like this episode, please follow or subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice, rate us, review us, and as always, we value your comments. And we hope you'll join us again next week on the Ed Curation Podcast.